All right, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 35. Paul continues, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies, and what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. I almost feel like quoting the Kansas song, right? Dust in the wind. You hear that dust going on there? All we are is dust in the wind. And then I think of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where he runs into, if you've never seen that movie, don't worry. It's, it's kind of a niche movie. <laughs> I, won't, I, won't even, I won't even bore you with the details. Anyway, they reference the song Dust in the Wind there. Anyway, 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> So as we have been going along here, uh, this chapter, of course, Paul is discussing the resurrection, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of our bodies, and our final victory, which we will look at next week, Lord willing. Uh, the first 11 verses, of course, Paul is laying the groundwork, he's laying the foundation for the truth of the resurrection, how he demonstrates that the resurrection is an historical fact. It is a fact that Christ died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. The reason it's a historical fact is because Paul cites not only that the scriptures foretold this, but he also talks about all the witnesses that have seen the resurrection, re resurrected Christ after the fact, how he appeared to the eleven, how he appeared to 500 brethren at once, and then how he appeared to the other leaders of the Jerusalem church. And then finally, last of all, he appeared... To Paul. So the resurrection of Christ is an established fact. And then in verses 12 through 34, which is really one argument that Paul is looking at here, he notes that some in the church there were saying that, okay, we'll grant you Jesus was raised from the dead, but we don't believe that the, that the believers are raised from the dead. And then Paul spends a, number, uh, you know, a good amount of time refuting that. Um, that argument. First, by showing how that argument leads to absurd conclusions. He's like, look, if you're going to deny the resurrection of the dead, then you might as well deny the resurrection of Christ, because they're of a kind. 
And if you deny the resurrection of Christ, well, then you've basically knocked the foundation out from under your faith. Your faith becomes vain, futile, and hopeless. You're stuck in your sins, and there's no hope. But then he goes on and says, but Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20. And then he talks about how Christ is the first fruits, the beginning, the, the promise of a great harvest that will come at the end of the age when he returns. All will be raised, and then he will, put de- he will destroy death. He will destroy all the enemies. Then the end will come, and then the kingdom will be handed over to the Father, and then we will all be, you know, that all will be in God, and God will be in all. And then last time we looked just at verses 29 to 34 as he looks at some of the consequences of denying the resurrection in which not only were there, was their thinking askew, but their behavior was askew. Because while they may be denying the resurrection, they're, they're engaging in practices that, that, well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why are you doing these things? And then Paul says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, why do I put myself in peril all the time? Paul was in peril all the time. I mean, all the time, right? He, <laughs> hourly, every hour. I die daily, he says. Um, just to talk about the danger that he was under constantly while proclaiming the Gospels. Like, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, I, I wouldn't do this, is what he is basically saying. And then he comes now to our passage this morning, verses 34, sorry, 35 to 49. This is a second question that was brought up uh, in Corinth, which is, okay, well, if there is a resurrection from the dead, then what kind of body do they have? How are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? So he's going to address this question now in verses 35 to 49. He's going to talk about the resurrection body, what our body is like. And it's not going to be like the body we have now. Well, it'll be like the body we have now, but it'll be better than the body we have now. So, and he's going to use an analogy of how you plant a seed and it grows a plant. Well, you, you put a body into the ground and it grows a glorious resurrection body, if you will, out of the ground. So that's going to be his point in these, what, 15, 16 verses we're going to look at this morning. And the theme that ties this all together this morning basically is this, that the good news of the resurrection is that we will have a glorified body just like Christ. As Christ's body is, so our body will be also. And he goes through that great uh, procession there in verses 42 through 45 where he talks about how our resurrection bodies will be incorruptible. They will be glorious. They will be powerful. And they will be spiritual. And we'll look at those as we get to them. But we have, uh, the passage can be broken down into three main points. You've got it there on your outline. So you've got the glory of natural bodies, verses 35 to 41, the glory of the resurrection bodies in 42 and 45. And then he kind of goes back to this comparison, if you will, between Adam and Christ, where he, you know, he, he compares the man of dust, which is Adam, and the man from heaven, which is Jesus Christ. And that closes the passage this morning. So first, in verses 35 to 41, the glory of natural bodies. So after dealing with that first question that starts in verse 12, the resurrection of the dead in light of Christ's resurrection, Paul now deals with a second question, and that question is, with what body then are we raised? Now again, you have to understand what is prompting this question 
in Corinth. And a few weeks back, we talked about uh, a teaching called Gnosticism. Now, that's spelled with a G-N, so Gnosticism, you know. Think of it that way. But it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And in, in the period of time that we're looking at here, uh, mid-first uh, century, Gnosticism wasn't really full-blown yet, but you see the beginnings of it, early forms of it. And it, it, Gnosticism, if you remember, comes out of the, uh, the philosophy of Plato. And Plato had a very dualistic way of looking at the world. The world was, you had matter, material things, and then you had spiritual things. And the spiritual things, that was where reality was. The material things were shadows or pale images or copies of the spiritual realities. And that kind of found its way into a Gnostic way of thinking. So, again, you're, you're talking about people who are sort of philosophically, if you will, resistant to the idea of a resurrection body. They, they don't think that that's something that we ought to be desiring. If anything, they want to be free from the body to be a free-floating spirit, if you will. So it's like, okay, if there's a res resurrection from the body, Paul, what kind of body are we talking about? What is it going to be? Is it going to be like this body? Because, you know, we're thinking that we don't like this body. And that question really is asking, what is the nature of of the resurrection body. That word there where you see in verse 35, and with what body do they come? Really that word there, what sort of body or what will the nature of that body be? Will it be the same body? Will it be different? Will it, you know, what is it, Paul? And the bigger question then that we need to address when we look at this is, if there is a resurrection from the dead, which there is, right, that's what Paul has been arguing for for 34 verses already. If there is a resurrection from the dead, what will it be like? Will it be more of the same? Will it just be, your, will it be like Lazarus, right, when Lazarus died and Christ raised him from the dead? Will it be like that? Or will it be something radically different? Now, I'm just going to go off and say, if it's like Lazarus' resurrection, then I want a refund, okay? Because what happens to Lazarus? He dies again, right? Okay, I don't want that kind of resurrection. I'm don't, don't give me another body that's going to last for another you know, 80, 90 years or so. Give me something better than that. There's got to be more to this than just more of this life. So then Paul, in verse 36, kind of rebukes that way of thinking by calling them foolish ones. <laughs> so there's your, you know how to win friends and influence people point. And, you know, Paul was, a, I'm sure Paul was a gracious individual. But when he came across, well, put it this way, when we get to Galatians, you get to see how uh, feisty Paul can be when you start messing with the gospel. He doesn't tolerate that. Um, Paul will tolerate a lot of things. He will not tolerate messing with the gospel. And, and here, really, when you're talking about the resurrection, this is, in a sense, related to the gospel, so he's like saying, look, foolish one. <laughs> you know, and really that word there, it's not the word for fool that you would normally see. It's, it's really talking about someone who hasn't really reflected on the issue enough. It's like, look, you haven't thought things through enough. You need to think about what we're talking about here. And then he proceeds to give them an agricultural analogy, which I'm sure being farmers you guys all love, the agricultural analogies in verses 37 to 38. 
Well, he says in verse 36, look, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And then what you sow, you do not sow that body but, uh, that shall be, I should say, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. So again, think of planting corn, okay? You don't take a corn cob and plant it into the ground. You plant corn seed that eventually grows into the corn stalk that then sprouts ears of corn. That's about a, that's, and that's the, that's the extent of my agricultural knowledge. Okay? I, I won't say anything more because I'm afraid that I'll get shot down. <laughs> I may be called foolish one. <laughs> but anyway, what Paul is saying is, look, the seed is different than the plant. But the seed contains everything that is necessary to grow the plant. Everything that is in the seed, the plant has. That's his point. So he begins with that rebuke, and he says, first, you can't grow a plant unless the seed dies. And from that, you can draw a principle. All right, before you can start talking about a resurrection, you have to have death. You have to have a death before there's a resurrection. That is the first principle there. And then second, he says, look, the seed and the plant are similar yet different. So principle number two is that the seed, as I said, contains everything that the plant will be. If you remember when we looked at John chapter 12, John chapter 12, when Jesus is uh, speaking to the, to the Greek believers that encounter him after the, uh, the triumphal entry, they want to see Jesus. You've got some Greek believers that want to see Jesus in verses 22, or sorry, 20 through 26 of chapter 12 in John's gospel. And they, they come to Philip, and then Philip brings them to Andrew, and then Andrew brings them to Jesus. And in verse 23, when they come, Jesus begins to speak to them. And he says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. You have to have death before you can have a resurrection. In, a, in, a plant, in order to grow a plant, the seed, quote-unquote, has to die, okay? Whatever that means, okay? The seed gets planted into the ground. Jesus says it dies, and it produces a plant. And then in verse 39, he goes on with another principle, which is basically this, that... Um, each kind of flesh produces more of the same kind. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. Eat, now, the word there, flesh, is the word sarks, and that has a range of meanings. Sometimes it can mean like your sinful nature. Here, Paul is just meaning like your physical body, okay, the, the physical part of you, your flesh. And flesh produces more of the same kind. This is a principle that was set into creation at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Way, way in the beginning. So go past your preface into Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Moses, the author of Genesis speaks or writes then God said let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures 
and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. And when they're fruitful and multiply, they'll be fruitful and multiply according to their kind. Same thing with uh, verse 24. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to its kind. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so, and so on and so forth. So each type of creature, each type of flesh, produces more of its kind. Fish produce fish. Birds produce birds. Beasts produce beasts. You've got these kinds. And not only that, the bodies that they have are suitable for the environment that God has placed them in. Fish have a body that is suitable for living underwater. Birds have bodies that are suitable for flying in the air. Men have bodies that are suitable for all kinds of things. Each flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, flesh of animals, birds, and fish, and so on. Then he goes on in verses 40 and 41 to talk about not only earthly or terrestrial things, but also celestial bodies. You may have footnotes there if you're using New King James where celestial is the word for heavenly and terrestrial is the word for earthly. And he says, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. One star differs from another star in glory. Now, Paul's not an astronomer, okay? So he, he's not an astrophysicist, but he is, he is making a, a true point here, is that the stars all differ, Right? When God, you know, I like the way it's uh, depicted in Genesis, when God places, makes the sun and makes the moon, and then there's that little, like, clause. It's almost like a throwaway clause. And it says, oh, and he made the stars also. You know, and you like, you know, in that verse, in that, like, and he made the stars. In those six words, basically you're talking about the vast, you know, expanse of the cosmos. You know, the so-called, as Carl Sagan would say, billions and billions of stars. Yeah, God made those too. He spoke those into existence too. And, you know, you look, you know, I mean, if you're a stargazer of any kind, or if you go to a planetarium of any kind, and you see the, 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 the vast, uh, unique beauty of the, the cosmos, you know, each star has a glory of its own kind. You know, God is infinitely creative, now, the point of all this is what Paul is laying the groundwork for here is what he'll say in the rest of the passage, verses 42 through 49. But basically what he's trying to say here is he needs to establish these principles that we noted earlier, that death precedes the resurrection, that what is sown contains everything that is needed for what will, will be reaped or what will grow after it, and each flesh produces more of its own kind. And it's interesting, too, because... You know, Paul is using examples from agriculture, examples from nature, and it's almost as if, by coincidence, wink, right, <laughs> by coincidence, <laughs> that nature has these useful metaphors and analogies to show how God's work in salvation and redemption flow. You know, it's like, as in the natural world, so in the spiritual world. And it's not a coincidence, okay? God has placed these examples and metaphors and analogies in nature 
in a way to point to the spiritual realities that we will be seeing in the next few verses. So Paul's laying this groundwork here in the first six verses about how um, the body that is sown will be different than the body that is raised, but it will have uh, connection points. It will have similarities to it. Now, verses 42 through 45, here's the payoff. As is the case with the natural bodies that we saw in verses 37 to 41, seed, grain, men, animals, fish, birds, stars, sun, moon, so is the case with resurrection bodies, verses 42 through 45. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption and is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. This last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the body, the dead body, is in a sense, sown. It is buried. Now I'm going to take just a moment here, a side point. I know uh, your previous minister, Reverend Joe Vusage, was instrumental in writing a position paper on cremation for our denomination. Now that paper didn't get adopted formally by our denomination. It's kind of a suggestion, right? (laughs) But the point is, Whatever you feel about uh, cremation, here at least you can make an argument that Paul expects a body to be buried. Okay, now there's other things with cremation we could talk about. And I, this is not the point; is to get into this. Cremation comes out of you know some some pagan notions of what to do with the body. Now it, it's it's the same thing like with a lot of things that you see in the world today. They may have some pagan origins, but by the time you get to 21st century America. All those pagan origins have pretty much gone by the wayside. I mean, like, people get all worked up about Halloween and what was, you know, what Halloween meant like 500 years ago. It's like, well, it doesn't mean that now. Halloween basically is just a day for kids to get dressed up in, in cool costumes and go out and get candy. All right, now perhaps there may be some that still practice some weird things on Halloween. The point is not to talk about Halloween or cremation. The point is to talk about how the Bible just kind of presumes that bodies will be buried, that will be put into the ground, because that's pretty much how it was always done. The body is sown, it is planted, it is buried, and then the resurrection body will be raised in its place. So in a sense, out of what you can call the chrysalis, to use a kind of a butterfly term, out of the chrysalis of the natural body comes the resurrection body. And just as the moth doesn't look anything like the butterfly that comes out of it. It is, in a sense, it's the same creature. It's just transformed within the chrysalis. This body, then, that is sown into the ground at the resurrection, then, will be glorified. It will be heavenized, if you will. I like using that word. I'm making up a word there. Heavenized. And what I mean by heavenized, it means to say that it's a body suitable for the new heavens and the new earth. It's a body suitable for the new creation. Now, in verses 42 through 44, Paul lists four characteristics in which the resurrection body will differ from the natural body. So when a body, our bodies, 
die and they're put into the ground. They are buried in corruption. They are buried in dishonor. They are buried in weakness. And they are buried a natural, physical body. But at the resurrection, they are raised incorruptible. They are raised glorious. They are raised powerful. And they are raised spiritual. Now, just a word on spiritual. It doesn't mean immaterial. We hear spiritual and you think immaterial, right? <laughs> spiritual means characteristic of the Holy Spirit. Right? It is a body that is characteristic or characterized by the Holy Spirit. Again, it's, it's for the age to come. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So we're going to look a little bit at these in some detail. Not terrible amount of detail. But first, corruption. The body is sown in corruption. The word there is thora. If you were to spell it with English letters, it would be F-T-H-O-R-A, thora. Hey, you know, it's Greek. What can you, I don't make up these words. Thora. But it means something that is perishable. Okay? What happens if you buy or grow fruit, put it in the fridge, and you don't eat it for like a week and a half? It's, it's phthora, okay? It kind of turns nasty and icky, right? And if you don't refrigerate it, then it kind of turns nasty and icky a lot quicker. Perishable, corruptible, something that decays. Our bodies, our natural bodies, are subject to being perishable. I mean, just look at us, right? We are not the same person we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, right? I mean, I, my body was a lot more vigorous in my 20s than it is now in my late 50s, right? And I'm sure many of you could say the same thing. Our bodies are perishable. My hair, some of us, at least those of us who still have hair, <laughs> if you don't have hair, your hair is very perishable. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, it's thinning, it turns gray, all these things. So perishable, as opposed to apatharsia, which is the opposite. It is not perishable. It is not corruptible. It is not uh, subject to decay, if you will. You think of um, in Genesis 3.19 when God pronounces the curse on Adam and he says, from dust you were made and from dust you shall return. And to dust you shall return, right? In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the natural body, right? God formed it out of the dust, and now it will return to dust. When you bury a body into the ground after a certain amount of time, it pretty much decomposes to the point where it's no longer there. Disintegrates in a sense. Uh, in just peek ahead in 1 Corinthians 50, 15, I should say, 50 through 54. In verse 50, he says this, and we're, like I said, I'm peeking ahead. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, right there, that's the reason why we have to be resurrected. Because the kingdom of God cannot be inhabited by people like us right now as we stand. So, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Then he goes on to say how we will be transformed and so on and so forth. And then the corruptible must put on incorruption. The mortal must put on immort uh, immortality. 
And then when that happens, the end, death is swallowed up in victory, and so on and so forth. So that's corruption and incorruption. The second is dishonor, atimia. Uh, it means disgraced. You know, we, we, are, we are not honorable anymore. Our bodies, again, are not honorable. They are, in a sense, dis, uh, a disgrace compared to what it was supposed to be. And then glory, of course, is splendor, exalted, glorified. Paul in Philippians 3 says that we will have a body like Christ's body when he returns at the end of the age. And you have weakness, asthenia, means a lack of strength, infirm, feeble. Our bodies are feeble, right? We get sick, we get ill, we contract diseases, we get back aches, we get shoulder aches, we get knee problems, you need hip replacements, knee replacements, shoulder replacements, all kinds of things. Pretty, you know, you, you go down to tie your shoes and you pull your back, okay, or something like that. You know, you, go, you try to lift up something, and if you don't lift with your knees, you lift with your back, then you're in traction for like a week, okay? That happens to us as we grow older. We become weak, but the body then will be, will be grown or it will come forth powerful, dunamis, that, that speaks of like an inherent ability, an inherent strength, power. And then finally, natural, sukikos, sukikos. You've got that word suke, which means psyche. You know, we get the word physics from it. It speaks of the natural world, physics. And so our bodies are natural. They're sukikos. That means pertaining to this age, pertaining to this life, pertaining to this world. It is an earthy body, a natural body. But it will be transformed into be a spiritual body, a uh, pneumaticos body, pertaining to the age to come, a, a heavenly body, a spiritual body, one that is characterized by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul confirms this, at, that he says, where he says, just as there is a natural body, there will be a spiritual body. You can bank on it. He's saying that. Look, the body that you have now is a natural body. You have that now, and just as there is a natural body, there will be a spiritual body. And Christ is the first fruits of that, right? When he was raised, he was raised incorruptible. He was raised powerful, glorious, and spiritual. He has a body that is fit for the age to come. He is the first fruits. And as the first fruits, so will the rest of the harvest be, right? That's the whole point of the first fruits. We will have a body like he has. And what kind of body is that? Well, we don't know all. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's not like a. Marvel or DC superhero, you can go and see a list of all their powers and abilities, but there's some hints to it in the Bible. In Luke 24, we know that when Jesus met the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he's in his resurrected body, and when he comes upon them, they don't recognize him. Now, it's not so much to say that Jesus was completely unrecognizable, it's just for some reason, they were not given eyes to see that this was the resurrected Jesus. But in Luke 24, verse 31, it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. What does that mean? Well, it means their eyes were opened, and they recognized Jesus, and then Jesus vanished from their sight. <laughs> what is that? I mean, he, he disappeared. We see this in John's Gospel. In John 20, he appears... They're in a locked room, the doors close, and all of a sudden Jesus appears to them and says, here I am. And 
You know, and Thomas is like, oh, you know, you know, it says, come on, Thomas, put your finger in the wounds in my side. Touch my palm, the palm of my hands. It's a body that can apparently appear and disappear, at least in this world. You know, I mean, there's, like I said, there's hints of it. But it is a glorious body. And then in verse 45, Paul makes a, a great statement here. Very important point regarding the two Adams, where he says, and so it is written, where he, when he says that, he's quoting from uh, Genesis 2-7, I believe. Let me just confirm that. Yep, Genesis 2-7. The first man, Adam, became a living spirit. Or, sorry, a living being. So God in the garden, right, Genesis 2, he forms Adam out of the dust of the earth. Now, at that point, it's just a dusty body, right? So what does he have to do to it? He breathes into the, into the body the breath of life. Adam became a living being because God breathed into him the breath of life. Adam needed to have the breath of life breathed into him. But the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, he becomes not just a living being, he becomes a life-giving spirit. He becomes a spiritual person who can then give life to others. I've got many, many verses I can show you, and I don't have time to show you. But you can jot these down. John 5, 21. John 5, 25 through 29. John 6, 57. John 10, verse 10. John 14, verse 16. Romans 8, verses 10 and 11. I mean, all of these verses talk about how Jesus gives life to those who are His. He is a life-giving Spirit. Finally, verses 46 through 49. The man of dust versus the man of heaven. So just as like there was a divine order to the resurrection, as we saw earlier in verse 23, each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, there is also an order, if you will, to the natural and the spiritual bodies. The natural one, the, the, the psuchikon body, is first. The natural body comes first, then the spiritual body. You need the seed to grow the plant. Right? And then, well, now in agriculture, of course, the, you know, a lot of plants produce their own seeds and so on and so forth. You've got the cycle of life. But here you need the seed to grow the plant. You need the natural to, uh, f- to produce the spiritual. Because it is the natural that is sown in the ground. It is the natural that is buried. And it is the spiritual body that is raised up after it. Romans 6.6 6. Here, talking about how we are in, in our union with Christ, we have a resurrection like His, starting in Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore, we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So our union with Christ indicates that as Christ died and was raised from the dead, we too have died with Christ, and we too will be raised from the dead with Christ. The natural is first, then the spiritual. 
Then he goes on to say that the natural man, the first man, was of the earth, made of dust. The dust man, if you will. There's a name for a superhero, dust man. <laughs> What's your power? Well, I'm dusty. <laughs> you can beat me with a, you know, a duster and some glade or whatever you use to, to, to dust your furniture with. The dust man, ek gase, from the earth, or koikos, made of earth, dusty. Again, Genesis 2.7, God formed Adam out of the dust. And then in Genesis 3.19, he says, look, you were formed out of the dust, and to the dust you will return. And Adam and all who follow after Adam are like that. We are dust people. We are the dust people, if you will. Okay, We are the ones who walk in Adam. Remember, when, when Adam's genealogy begins in Genesis 5, Right? Adam was made in the image of God, and then we see that Adam had a son in his own image, right? in Adam's image. And that image was not only fallen and corrupted, but it's an image of dust, if you will. We are dusty. We are earthy. We, we are made for this age, again. I, I keep emphasizing that. We are made for life in this world. Right? That's what dust people are for. We have a body that is suitable for life in this age. But the second man, Christ, he's not of the dust. He came from heaven. He is the heavenly man. And when he was resurrected, he had a body that is suitable for the new creation, the age to come. So the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. So we follow in Adam's footsteps, if you will. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And Paul closes the passage here by showing us that as was Adam, so also those who follow the man of dust. Similarly, as was Christ, so also those who follow the man of heaven. And in other words, this is really just another way of saying like what he said in verse 22 of chapter 15. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Right? If you are in Adam, you are, and that's what the state we're all born into, right? We're all born in Adam. If you're in Adam, you are destined to die in Adam. If you're in Adam, you are a dust man like Adam, and then to the dust you will return, and that's it. And your body will then go into the lake of fire, as we'll see later in some other passages. But if you're in Christ, and how are you in Christ? Through the new birth, right? Your natural birth brings you into Adam. Your spiritual rebirth brings you into Christ. If you're Christ and you are characterized as a heavenly person, you will be made alive. Because Christ is a life-giving spirit who will, who will continue to give you and supply you life through that union that you have with him by the Holy Spirit. So just a few other passages, if you will. Romans 8, verse 29. I'll start in verse 28, because I like verse 28. Romans 8, 28. It's a popular verse. Everyone knows this one. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Verse 29. For whom... God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay. Now it goes on in verse 30 to talk about the chain, right? The chain of salvation. So those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Right? So from beginning to end, you are secure in God's chain of salvation. But in verse 29, the one I, what I really want to point out there is the fact that we are predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. So that is, those who are in Christ will follow after Christ. As Christ is a heavenly person, we too will be heavenly people because we will be conformed to His image. Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. He is the exact imprint of the image of God, as the writer to Hebrews says. We are the image of God, but we are a fallen, broken, created image of God. So we need to be sort of remade and reformed and reshaped so that we bear the image of God as Jesus bears the image of God. Another great passage, 2 Corinthians 3. Where Christ here, or Paul here, I should say, is talking about the glory of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians 3, looking at the end of the chapter there. Verse 18. Where Paul, excuse me, where Paul there says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now this idea of unveiled face, Paul is making a comparison between the glory of the Old Covenant and the glory of the New Covenant. And he references a story in Exodus where Moses would be up on the mountain with God, and as he was there, he would sort of, in a way, sort of absorb a little bit of the Shekinah glory, and he would come down to the people, and his face would be shining, and the people would be like, ooh, you know, it's like, because Moses had been in the presence of the Lord, and then the face would, you know, the glory would fade, and he would put a veil over his face, so that they would not see the fading of the glory. And then whenever Moses went back up, it's sort of, you know, have you ever have those toys you put together and you, you put them up by the light and then you turn the light off and they would kind of glow in the dark for a while? In a way, it's kind of like what Moses was. He's like one of these little glow-in-the-dark toys. But anyway, it has, says nothing to do about 2 Corinthians 3.18. The point is that we with an unveiled face, right, we with an unveiled face will behold as, as it were the glory of God and we will be transformed into that glory, into that same image from glory to glory. Our life is one in which we are more and more being transformed into the image of Christ. Philippians 3. I've mentioned this a few times, but let's just look there. Philippians 3. We're almost done. Don't worry. I've got time. We'll start on time this morning. Don't worry. Have faith. (laughs) This is a walk by faith, not by sight. Don't look at the clock. Philippians 3, verse 20. Paul uses this word a couple times in Philippians, that word that you see there in verse 20, citizenship. He uses it earlier, but he's, he's, like, he's talking about the people, uh, the enemies of God. He says, look, you're, you are not like that. Why? Because your citizenship as being 
followers of Christ. Your citizenship is not here. It is in heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, our corrupt, weak, um, dishonorable, natural body. He will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, incorruptible, strong, powerful, glorious, spiritual, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. Did I say that was the last one? I've got one more. Sorry. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've got one more, as Bugs Bunny would say. 1 John chapter 3. Uh, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. And I'm really, I am almost done. Don't worry. We'll get there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And I love the way John says that. Not you will be the children of God. You are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, that is Christ, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. When Christ comes and returns at the end of the age, we will be like him. He will reveal himself and we will be like he is. So as we close, the resurrection brings an entirely new way of life and a new kind of living. Gone will be all of the weakness and frailty of this life. And in its place, the glory and perfection of the new creation will come and we will be in bodies that are fit for the glories of the new creation. And just a brief little gospel encouragement at the end, because the gospel, beloved, is much more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It is that, and I don't want to diminish that at all. It is the forgiveness of our sins. But if the gospel was only the forgiveness of our sins... Right then I think it would be a weak gospel, right? If it's just the forgiveness of our sins. It is so much more than that. The gospel is a promise that though we come from dust, though we are in the image of Adam, the, the fallen, broken image of Adam, we will be transformed. We will be heavenly, like Christ is heavenly. We bore the image of Adam and we will be remade into the image of Christ. That is the full promise of the gospel. The fact that our sins are forgiven is part of that. But the rest of the gospel is that we will be transformed into the image of Christ. I'll stop there. Next week we will finish 1 Corinthians 15. Lord willing, if we're here next week. I'm not sure which one I want more. To, for Christ to return at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 or at the end of the book of Revelation. Because at the end of 15, you've got that crescendo at the end that says, you know, uh, you know death is swallowed up in victory. We're and then Christ will return right at that point. I think that would be wonderful. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, the, anyway. Let's close in a word of prayer and let's get ready for worship. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for the gospel that promises not only the forgiveness of our sins and that... We have the righteousness of Christ applied to us, but also, Lord, that you are not only conforming us into the image of your Son here and now through the sanctification that your Spirit works in us, but also that we will be glorified. 
that we will be like Christ when he reveals himself at the end of the age. So Lord, help us to, to remember that. Help us to use that as a, as a hope, as an anchor to, to set our lives right and to, to hold on to that anchor in the turbulent winds and waves of, of change that we see in this world. Now, Lord, bless us as we get ready to enter into worship. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.